welcome to the most recent in Exeter College. Uh, it's long perambulation towards the celebration of its 700th anniversary. It's the most recent lecture in a series um, to celebrate that anniversary. I'm Jerry Johnson, fellow in English. Some of you know that only too well. Uh, it's wonderful to see so many people here today. It's my great pleasure to introduce one of Exeter's most distinguished, most rightly honored alumni. Philip Pullman, who came to the college in 1968 to read English, I have to say an experience he's on the record as saying he did not much enjoy. <laughs> I hasten to say it was before my time. <laughs> Has since then moved well beyond our precinct has stepped onto the world stage and there been recognized as one of the English-speaking world's most gifted storytellers. Philip Pullman writes what, in, an inter in interview after interview, he persistently calls simply stories. Stories set in Victorian England of a young unwed mother solving mysteries, Sally Lockhart, of the new cut gang, Benny, Thunderbolt, Bridie, Angela and Zanina, Sharky Bob, from English, Irish, Italian, Jewish families working together to catch criminals. Stories about young girls who have talking elephant friends named Hamlet, nice touch that, uh, who want to become as great a firework maker as her father. Stories about a boy who wants a pet rat of Mary Jane, herself not a million miles away from Cinderella, whose wish to attend the ball is granted, her pet rat becomes a boy and gets stuck. Most famously, of course, he created Lyra and her demon, Pantalaemon, her friend Will, and their battle with, and I hope I'm not letting the cat out of the bag here, their eventual defeat of a totalitarian magisterium and its authority, his dark materials. And with this trilogy, Philip found millions of readers, both children, who'd already known he was a genius storyteller, but adults too, not all of whom were entranced. While, for the first Northern Lights, he won the 1995 Carnegie Medal, as voted librarians, and later was named the Carnegie of Carnegie's, as voted by the public, and the Guardian Fiction Prize, and with the last in the trilogy, The Amber Spyglass, he made history again, not only by winning the children's book section of the Whitbread Prize, but went on uniquely for a children's book to win the overall prize. And while in 2005, he was awarded the most prestigious prize in children's literature, the Astrid Lindgren Memorial Prize for his career contribution to children's and young adult fiction, and while all of this is true, and it's just, some adults, having discovered him, declared him subversive. The most dangerous author in Britain. <laughs> and tried repeatedly to have his books banned. One critic denounced his trilogy as a series in which the good characters, he said with astonishment, are gypsies, an African prince, a homosexual angel, and a renegade nun who denounces her faith. Now that sounds exactly like my kind of crowd, I have to say. <laughs> uh, where can I sign up? What was found to be so dangerous was that Philip dared to present a world very like this one, 
where children do battle with those who would tell them what it is right to think, in a world where books are banned, for example, who enforce their views with violence and repression, who would perform medical experiments to sever children from their demons. The demon, of course, being Philip's own version of the soul. But a world where children can and do use their natural talents, their intelligence, their bravery, their judgment to defeat such despotism, find themselves, step into adulthood, and into the wonders of our multifaceted, brilliant, natural world. For in story after story, Philip retells this tale of children coming to maturity, learning moral lessons, choosing to act for good, exercising their growing ethical muscles, and he does so with an imagination seldom matched in our literature, and in a language as clear and vivid as that of our finest writers. Dangerous indeed. Now, Philip may not have much enjoyed reading English at Exeter, but he has given the college a great gift in modeling Lyra's first domain, Jordan College, on Exeter. He opens Laura, uh, sorry, Northern Lights with Lyra and her demon moving in darkness through the great hall and into the retiring room where she witnesses the master put poison into the wine that will be served to the man she thinks her uncle, Lord Asriel. The place is unmistakably Exeter, though we no longer have only male fellows or scholars, and in the great hall pictures of female as well as male rectors hang. Nor are we under the thumb of the magisterium, but are instead, I like to think, a place where ideas can be debated in openness with exuberance and intelligence, and books are definitely not banned. As Philip might call it, a democracy of thought, and an institution justly proud of having had Philip pass through on the, his way to greater things. Now, with his most recent publication, Grim Tales, I have to say I like the pun, Philip has returned to the realm of fairy tales. Remember that rat boy? To retell in what another critic has described as his limpid narrative prose, the tales of the Brothers Grimm. Today, we're privileged that he's going to share with us his experience of retelling Grimm. Philip Pullman. Thank you very much, Jerry, for that generous introduction, and thank you to Exeter College for uh, inviting me to take part in this um, run-up to the 700th year. Isn't that extraordinary? 700 years. Um, so I'm here to talk about Grimm this afternoon, and I'll start by reading a story. There was once a miller who had a beautiful daughter. When she came of age to be married, he thought he should look out for a suitable husband for her. If anyone respectable comes along, he said to himself, I'll give her to him. Word got around, and before long, a gentleman appeared to ask about this beautiful daughter. The miller interviewed him, found no fault with him, and promised that he could marry her. However, the daughter didn't take to him at all. There was something about him she didn't trust. And whenever she thought about him or heard his name mentioned, she felt her heart contract with horror. One day, the prospective bridegroom said to her, you know, my dear, we're engaged to be married, but you've never paid me a visit. Why not come to my house? After all, it will soon be your own home. I don't know where your house is, the girl said. It's out in the forest, he said. Beautiful situation, you'll see. I don't think I'll ever be able to find my way there, she said. No, no, you must come on Sunday. I've already invited some guests. They're looking forward to meeting you. 
I'll make a trail of ashes so you can follow it through the trees. On Sunday, the girl felt an awful foreboding. She'd rather do anything than set off through the woods to the bridegroom's house. She filled her pockets with peas to mark the trail in case anything happened. At the edge of the forest, she found the trail of ashes, and after every step, she threw a couple of peas to left and right. She walked almost the whole day till she came to a part of the forest where the trees grew so, th so thick and high that it was dark underneath them. And there, right in the heart of the woods, she found the bridegroom's house. It was dark and silent and seemed to be deserted. There was no one inside but a bird in a cage, and he was no comfort either because all he could sing was, Turn back, get out, go home, take care. This is a murderer's house, beware. She looked up at the bird and said, Can't you tell me any more than that, little bird? The bird sang again, Turn back, get out, go home, take care. This is a murderer's house, beware. The bride wandered from one room to another, but she didn't see anyone until she went down to the cellar. There she found a very old woman sitting by the light of a fire, shaking her head. Please can you tell me if my bridegroom lives here, said the girl. Oh, you poor child, replied the old woman, why ever did you come to this house? It's a damned murderess. You talk of a bridegroom, the only bridegroom you'll be marrying is death. See this big pot of water on the fire? They made me set it there to boil. When they turn up, they're going to chop you in pieces and throw you in the pot, cook you till you're tender and eat you all up. They're a pack of cannibals. Now I've taken pity on you because you're a poor innocent thing and besides you've got a pretty face. Come over here. The old woman led her behind a large barrel where she was out of sight from the rest of the cellar. Stay there and don't make a sound, she said. If they hear you, that's the end of you. When they're asleep later on, we'll escape. No sooner had she said this than the band of murderers came home, dragging with them another girl whom they'd captured. She screamed and sobbed, but they were drunk and took no notice of her pleas for mercy. They forced her to drink a glass of red wine, then one of white, and then one of yellow, and the third one was too much for her. Her heart burst apart. Then they tore off her fine clothes and laid her on the table before chopping her in pieces and sprinkling her with salt. The poor bride-to-be behind the barrel trembled in every limb, seeing what fate the murderers had in mind for her. Then one of them saw a gold ring on the dead girl's finger. He took an axe and chopped the finger off, but it flew in the air and right over the barrel and into the bride's lap. He couldn't see where it had gone, so he took a light and began to look for it. Another murderer said, Look behind the big barrel, I think it went over there. But the old woman called out, Come and eat your supper. The finger won't run away, you can find it in the morning. She's right, said the others, and they pulled up chairs and sat down to eat. The old woman poured a sleeping draught in their wine, so that before they'd even finished eating, they all slumped to the floor and fell asleep. When the bride heard them snoring, she crept out from behind the barrel. She had to step over the sleeping murderers where they all lay on the cellar floor. She was terribly afraid she'd step on one and wake him up. Dear God, help me, she whispered, and she got to the cellar steps safely where the old woman was waiting. They crept upstairs, opened the door, and hurried out as fast as they could. It was just as well that the girl had brought peas to throw on the ground, because the ashes that showed the path had all blown away. The peas had sprouted, though, and in the moonlight they could see them and followed the trail all the way to the mill, where they arrived just as the sun was rising. The girl told her father everything that had happened from beginning to end, and the old woman confirmed it. When the wedding day arrived, the bridegroom appeared, smiling all around and being pleasant to everyone. The miller had invited all his relations and all his friends, and they were impressed by this handsome, friendly man. As they sat down to eat, each guest was asked to tell a story. The bride said nothing at all as they listened to the stories going round the table, 
And finally the bridegroom said, come on, my darling, haven't you got a story to tell? Just tell us something. So she said, all right, I'll tell you about a dream I had. I was walking in the forest when I came to a dark house. There wasn't a soul in sight. There was only a little bird in the cage that said, turn back, get out, go home, take care. This is a murderer's house, beware. It said that twice, but my dear one, it was only a dream. I went through all the rooms, and although there was no one there, something was uncanny about the place. Finally, I went down to the cellar, where I found an old woman shaking her head. I said to her, does my bridegroom live in this house? She said, alas, poor child, you're in the house of a murderer. Your bridegroom does live here, but he's going to chop you into pieces and cook you and eat you. That isn't so, said the bridegroom. Don't worry, it was only a dream. The old woman hid me behind a great big barrel, and as soon as I was there, the robbers came back, dragging the poor girl with them, screaming and bleeding for mercy. They forced her to drink three glasses of wine, one red, one white, and one yellow, and that made her heart burst apart, so she died. That isn't so, it isn't so, cried the bridegroom. Dear heart, sit still, it was only a dream. They took off her fine clothes, laid her on the table, and chopped her to pieces and sprinkled salt on them. That isn't so, and it wasn't so, and God forbid it should be so, shouted the bridegroom. Darling, still you are. It was only a dream. Then one of the robbers saw a gold ring on the poor girl's finger. He took an axe and chopped it off and the finger flew through the air and landed in my lap. And here is that finger with the ring. With those words she held up the finger and the ring so that everyone could see. The bridegroom who had become as white as chalk leapt up and tried to escape. But the guests seized him and held him tight and then marched him to the court. Soldiers were sent out to capture the rest of the band. And they were all put to death for their wicked deeds. That's a story called The Robber Bridegroom. I wanted to start with it because there are no fairies in it. Nothing supernatural whatsoever. It's a good gory shocker, and that's that. It's a little unfortunate that we call the stories of the Brother Grimm fairy tales because that um, does suggest, well, at least it suggests to those people who haven't read Tolkien's essay on the subject, um, the presence of fairies or elves or pixies, of which there are surprisingly few in their great book. It's also used to translate the Russian term skazka, which my favorite composer, the Russian Nikolai Metner, used for several of his short pieces for piano. If you see one of his um, skazki on a concert program, it'll be rendered as fairy tale. But that's the English term, and we're stuck with it, most unfortunately in my view, because it does suggest something whimsical, something flimsy and pretty and delicate, something little and soft and immature and heaven forfend, childish. The great collection that the Grimm's put together 200 years ago has very little of the flimsy and delicate about it. It's as tough as the buffalo high boots in the story of that name. It's vulgar and funny and coarse and horrifying. As for fairies themselves, I can think of two or three stories that feature elves and a handful of presenters with dwarfs who dig in mines. But as for pretty little people with wings, there ain't none. We can put fairies out of our minds. The two brothers, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm, were born in 1785 and 1786, respectively, and they led lives of studious propriety. The only event of any public excitement they experienced occurred in 1837, when with five of their university colleagues in Göttingen, they refused to take an oath of allegiance to the new king of Hanover, Ernst August, because he'd illegally dissolved the constitution. Quite a brave thing to do, actually. They were dismissed from their university posts and moved to Berlin, where they more or less carried on where they left off. Apart from that, they present a challenge to the biographer. 
As many people know, their main interest was philology. They began to collect stories in the first place because they were studying the roots of the German language and they thought they could find evidence in folk tales and folk songs and poetry. They weren't the only scholars doing this by any means. In fact, if their collection hadn't become so famous, someone else would have made one that would. They were connected um, in the, the intellectual circles they moved in by acquaintance and interest to the scholars and writers Clemens Brentano and Achim von Arnim, who made a collection of folk songs called Des Knaben Wunderhorn, which would inspire several composers to set them to music, most notably perhaps Gustav Mahler. Interest in folk sort of things was burgeoning. It was going on all over the place. It's worth mentioning um, this Knaben Wunderhorn because when it came out, Jakob Grimm wrote to his brother about that collection, expressing his disapproval of the way Brentano and von Arnim had treated their material, cutting and adding and modernizing and rewriting as they thought fit. Very disapproved of that. Later on, of course, he did exactly the same thing with his tales. And I started with the story of the robber bridegroom because in rendering it in my own words, I've done the same thing. Any Shakespearean scholar, surely there must be one or two here, or anyone who's recently played Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing might recognize the interjections from the robber bridegroom at the end of the story. They don't occur in Grimm. I pinched them from a British version of the story called Mr. Fox. It was only after doing that that I realized that in the first scene of Much Ado, Benedict says, like the old tale, my lord, it is not so, nor twas not so, but indeed, God forbid, it should be so. So it was already an old tale when Shakespeare referred to it. I put those words in because I like the rhythmic punctuation they gave to the bride's recital of her ordeal disguised as a dream. And that was my principle throughout. If I thought I saw an improvement I could make, I made it. And I was perfectly willing to steal. I did hold back occasionally. In another British version of this tale, with the marvelous title of The Cellar of Blood, the bride's family telephoned Scotland Yard and asked them to send some detectives to the storytelling party. I thought I could leave that out. I allow myself to fiddle around a bit with these stories because um, this book doesn't set out to be a scholarly version. There are already several accurate and sentence-for-sentence -sentence translations of Grimm, including one by Jack Zipes, who knows everything there is to know about the Grimms and Grimmology. There's also a very good one by Ralph Mannheim, which I used for years. And there are others, both ancient and modern, which translate the tales fully and well. There was no need, I thought, for another straightforward translation. And if there was, I doubt whether Penguin Classics would have asked me to do it. Which is what they did, actually, about five or six years ago. They had a selected grin, which had been in print for uh, 40 years or thereabouts, and they thought it was time for another, and was I interested? You bet I was. I couldn't wait. I leapt at the job. I began by reading all 210 of the tales and making a precy of each one, and some initial notes to get to know the whole corpus and I thought I'd pick out 70 or so to work on. That number came down to 50 when the publisher worked out print sizes and paper thickness and so on. So I picked the 50 I wanted to do and started work. It was obvious that I had to include all the famous ones. If someone buys a selected Grimm, they don't want to find that Little Red Riding Hood isn't there. So the half dozen or so that everyone knows, there aren't that many actually, that everyone knows had to be there, which was fine by me, because they're famous for the simple reason that they're very good. The rest are there in my selection for all sorts of reasons, but mainly because I myself enjoy them very much as stories. 
They're also stories about which I thought it would be interesting to say something. I wanted to have a paragraph or so, or a few paragraphs, or a couple of pages, as it is in some cases, of notes after each story, to say what I found interesting or rewarding about them in story terms. I'm not a scholar, but I am a storyteller with a fair amount of experience, and I thought I'd be able to find some story sort of things to talk about. Then I set to work. My German is exiguous. I learned that word at Exeter College. <laughs> I think it was referring to something to do with my work. My German is exiguous, so this doesn't pretend to be a translation. Nevertheless, I thought it important to have the German text open on the desk as I worked, and I checked pretty well every sentence against it as I went along to get a feeling of the rhythm as much as anything else. It's so important, um, the, the, the rhythm, the speed at which a story is told. And of course, I had to rely largely on translations that already existed, Zeipses and Mannheims and others. I thought that would be okay, because the Kinder und Hausmärchen, the children's and household tales, roughly, is not a text in the way that the words of a literary work are a text. The words of Milton's Paradise Lost, or Goethe's Faust, are what Paradise Lost or Faust are. And the words are what's important. If we're reading or studying or being examined on a literary work, those words are of supreme importance. They are what it is. I wouldn't try and dream of trying to make a version of Faust. But the words of The Robber Bridegroom or Little Red Riding Hood or the goose girl at the spring, are not a text. They're a recording, if you like, of a particular performance. On another day, with a different teller and a different transcriber, the words on the page might be different. Different tellers matter a lot, because this one might be very good at the funny parts, and that one's skillful at the suspense, and naturally, they'll play up what they're best at. Or they might just have a hangover and not feel like telling a story at all that day. Different transcribers, too, or the same transcriber on another day. It all makes a difference. There are two or three exceptions to this rule in Grimm, and I'll come to them later because I think they're interesting and important. But for the most part, the essence of these tales lies not in the particular words they come to us in, so much as in the sequence of events they tell us about. My relationship with the stories I worked on for this book was more like the relationship between the jazz musician and the chords of the song he's improvising on than that of the orchestral musician and the printed score. I didn't depart from the chords, I played the changes, as they say, but I did so in my own, word, in my own words, my own voice, improvising as I felt it right to do so. Here's another example. It's a story called The Three Snake Leaves. Once there was a poor man who couldn't support his only son anymore. When the son realized this, he said, Father, it's no use my staying here. I'm just a burden to you. I'm going to leave home and see if I can earn a living. The father gave him his blessing and they parted sorrowfully. The king of a nearby country was a powerful ruler and at that time he was waging war. The young man enlisted in his army and soon found himself at the front where a great battle was being fought. The bullets flew like hail, the danger was hideous and his comrades were falling dead all around. When the general himself fell dead, the last of the troops were going to flee, but the young man took his place and yelled, We won't be defeated! Follow me and God save the king! The men followed him as he led the charge, and they soon had the enemy on the run. When the king heard of the young man's part in the victory, he promoted him to field marshal, gave him golden treasure, 
and bestowed on him the highest honors in the kingdom. Now the king had a daughter who was very beautiful, but she had one strange obsession. She had sworn an oath not to marry any man unless he promised to let himself be buried alive with her if she died first. After all, if he really loves me, she said, why would he want to go on living? And she said that, of course, she would do the same and be buried with him if he was the first to die. This grim condition had put off many young men who would otherwise have begged to marry her. But the soldier was so struck by her beauty that nothing would discourage him. So he asked the king for her hand. Do you know what you must promise? said the king. If she dies before me, I must go to the grave with her, said the soldier. But I love her so much, I'm willing to risk that. The king consented and the wedding was celebrated with great splendor. For a while they lived together happily, but one day the princess fell ill. Doctors came from all over the kingdom, but none of them could help her, and presently she died. And then the young soldier remembered the promise he'd had to make. There was no way of getting out of it, even if he'd wanted to, because the king was going to put sentries at the grave itself and all around the cemetery in case he tried to escape. When the day came for the princess to be buried, they carried her body to the royal vault, made sure the young man was inside, and the king personally locked and bolted the door. They put some provisions in there. On the table there were some candles, four loaves of bread and four bottles of wine. The soldier sat there beside the princess's body day after day, taking only a mouthful of bread and a sip of wine, making them last as long as possible. When he'd taken the last sip but one, and eaten the last mouthful but one, and when the last candle was down to his last inch, he knew that his time had nearly come. But as he sat there in despair, he saw a sneak crawl out of a corner of the vault and move towards the body. Thinking it intended to eat her, the young man drew his sword. While I live, you shan't touch her, he said, and struck the snake three times, cutting it to pieces. Shortly afterwards, a second snake came crawling out of the corner. It came to the body of the first snake and looked at it, piece by piece, and then crawled away again. Soon it came back, and this time it had three green leaves in its mouth. Carefully moving the first snake's body together again, it laid a leaf on each of the wounds, and in a moment the dead snake stirred into life, the wounds closed up, and it was whole again. The two snakes hurried away together. But the leaves were still lying where they'd left them, and the young man thought that if their miraculous power had brought the snake back to life, it might do the same for a human being. So he picked up the leaves and laid them on the dead princess's white face, one on her mouth and the other two on her eyes. And as soon as he did this, her blood began to stir. A healthy pink came into her cheeks, and she drew a breath and opened her eyes. God in heaven, she said, where am I? You're with me, my dear wife, said the soldier, and told her all that had happened. He gave her the very last mouthful of bread and the very last sip of wine, and then they banged on the door and shouted so loudly that the sentries outside heard them and went running to the king. The king came to the graveyard himself and unlocked and unbolted the door of the vault. The princess tumbled into his arms, he shook the young man's hand, and everyone rejoiced at the miracle that had brought her back to life. As for the snake leaves, the soldier was a careful man, and he told no one about how the princess had been revived. But he had an honest and reliable servant, so he gave this servant the three snake leaves to look after. Take good care of them, he said. Make sure you keep them with you wherever we go. You never know when we might need them again. Now after she was brought to life, a change came over the princess. All the love she had for her husband drained away from her heart. She still pretended to love him, however, and when he suggested making a sea voyage to visit his old father, she agreed at once. What a pleasure it'll be to meet the noble father of my dearest husband, she said. 
But once at sea, she forgot the great devotion the young man had shown her because she felt a lust growing in her for the captain of the ship. Nothing would satisfy her but to sleep with him, and soon they were lovers. One night in his arms, she whispered, Oh, if only my husband were dead. What a marriage we two could make. That is easily arranged, said the captain. He took a length of cord and, with the princess at his side, crept into the cabin where the young man was sleeping. The princess held one end of the cord and the captain wound the other around her husband's neck and then they pulled so hard that, struggle as he might, he couldn't fight them off and soon they'd strangled him. The princess took her dead husband by the head and the captain took him by the feet and they threw him over the ship's rail. Let's go home now, said the princess. I'll tell my father that he died at sea and I'll sing more praises and he'll let us be married and you can inherit the kingdom. But the faithful servant had seen everything they'd done and as soon as their backs were turned he untied a boat from the ship and rowed back in search of his master's body. He soon found it and after hauling it into the boat he tied, untied the cord from around the young man's neck and put the three snake leaves on his eyes and mouth and he came back to life at once. Then the two of them rowed with all their might Day and night they rowed, stopping for nothing, and their boat flew over the waves so fast that they reached the shore a day before the ship and went straight to the palace. The king was amazed to see them. What's happened, he said. Where's my daughter? They told him everything, and he was shocked to hear of his daughter's treachery. I can't believe she'd do such a terrible thing, he said. But the truth will soon come to light. And so it did. Very soon the ship arrived at the port, and on hearing of this, the, the king made the young man and his servant wait in a hidden room where they could listen to everything that was said. The princess, dressed all in black, came sobbing to her father. Why have you come back alone, he said. Where's your husband? Why are you wearing mourning? Oh, father dear, she said, I'm inconsolable. My husband took ill with a yellow fever and died. The captain and I had to bury him at sea. If he hadn't helped me, I don't know what I would have done. But the captain's such a good man. He looked after my dear husband when the fever was at its height, no matter what the danger. He can tell you all about it. Oh, your husband's dead, is he? said the king. Let's see if I can bring him back to life. And he opened the door and invited the other two to come out. When the princess saw the young man, she fell to the ground as if she'd been struck by lightning. She tried to say that her husband must have been hallucinating in his fever, that he must have fallen into a coma so deep they mistook it for death. But the servant produced the cord. And in the face of that evidence, she had to admit her guilt. Yes, we did it, she sobbed. But please, Father, show some mercy. Don't speak to me of mercy, said the king. Your husband was ready to die in the grave with you, and he gave you back your life, but you killed him in his sleep. You'll get the punishment you deserve. And she and the captain were put on board a ship with holes drilled in the hull and sent out over the stormy sea. Soon they sank with the ship and were never seen again. I fooled about a bit with the dialogue in that story to make it flow more easily and put it into the sort of voice I hear in my head when I tell a story like that. A completely literal translation can't help feeling a little flat because the original sometimes reads rather like a diagram or an equation. It's possible that the original tellers of many of these tales would have been a bit looser and freer about them if they hadn't had to bear in mind that their words were being written down as they spoke. They might have felt more able to let their own voice have its way. It's also possible that in writing them down, Jacob or Wilhelm smoothed out some of the individual characteristics of the tellers. We all know what a chore transcribing speech can be. At any rate, I had to find the words for my voice, not someone else's. But the main thing I did in The Three Snake Leaves 
which is a wonderful story, and very few people know it, seem to know it. The main thing I did there was to change the way the young man was killed. In the original, they just chuck him over the side. But taking a hint from a version of the story in Italo Calvino's uh, wonderful book, Italian Folk Tales, I'll steal from anything. <laughs> I thought he should be more unquestionably murdered. And besides, if they could have some evidence of the crime to produce at the end, like the finger and the ring in the robber bridegroom, it would make a more satisfying conclusion. But it doesn't half move quickly. The swiftness, we might say the bareness of the telling, is a great virtue in the fairy tale. The same is true of the great ballads of Scotland and the borders, of course. Another story um, about being sent out over the stormy sea. The king sat in Dunfermline town, drinking the blood red wine. Oh, where can I get a skilly skipper to sail this ship of mine? Then up and spake an elder knight sat at the king's right knee. Sir Patrick Spence is the best sailor that ever sailed the sea. The elder knight came from Morningside, I think. Eight lines, and we're already deep in a conspiracy to kill Sir Patrick Spence. The king writes him a letter. The first line that he looked upon, so loud, loud laughed he. The next line that he looked upon, the tear blinded his ee. Oh, who is this has done this deed, this ill deed done to me, to send us out this time of the year to sail upon the sea? That swiftness, that dreamlike speed, is common to the best ballads and the best fairy tales. What is very unlike is the novel. Being a novelist by trade, I relish a lot of what the novel does, the calm laying out of background and weather and landscape, the tremors and mysteries of human awareness, the whispers of memory, the promptings of half-understood regret or doubt or desire. There's a place for those, and the place is the novel, not the fairy tale. Anyone who tries to tell the story of Cinderella, for example, by describing the kitchen with lots of brilliant imagery, or going into the causes and background of her mother's death by switching tenses or intercutting flashbacks, or exploring the girl's feelings in detail and having her smiling ruefully, for example, or sighing wistfully, or for the matter of that, doing more or less anything um, to the accompaniment of an adverb, <laughs> or going into the motivations of each wicked sister, for example, and so on and so forth, maybe doing it all very well, but they're not doing it like a fairy tale, they're doing it like something else. This has something to do, I was thinking this this morning, um, with how far, how far the narrative voice is from the events. In a novel, you can have close-ups. Novels are, uh, uh, novel relishes close-ups, made of close-ups almost. In a folktale, there's a certain distance between the narrative voice and the characters, the events, the things described, and this leads to a certain formulaic quality. If things are seen from a distance, we need to see them broadly and clearly and take them in at once. And this has its effects on the nature of the imagery that we find in fairy tales. There's a startling lack of original vision, of close, vivid description of brilliant imagery in these stories. As red as... Go on. Blood. And as white as... Thank you. Are about all we get in the way of imagery. Forests are deep. Princesses are beautiful, hair is golden, witches are wicked, pass him. Again, there's an exceptional uh, uh, that I'll come to in a minute, but for the most part, description is made up of hand-me-down, ready-made, second-hand cliches. The backgrounds are flat, and so are the characters. There's no place in a fairy tale for a character like Jane Eyre, or Elizabeth Bennet, or Iago, 
deeply imagined, three-dimensional, richly complex, and fully human. In a fairy tale, they would stick out like a... What would they stick out like? <laughs> a sore thumb, that's right. They belong in the novel. Because fairy tale characters might as well be made of cardboard. They have no psychology at all. They are masks with one characteristic only, bravery or beauty or wickedness. Come close to them, as you do in a novel, and all you'd see would be papier-mâché, a mask with a fixed expression. They seldom have individual names, even. They are the miller, the tailor, the witch, the princess, the soldier. When they do have a name, it's usually something common like Hans, or in English, Jack. Given their lack of reflection, their propensity to act immediately without brooding on it, their straightforward openness, even in being dishonest, we might say they're not actually conscious. Can I adequately convey to you the pleasure of working with characters like this? <laughs> I've been allowed to share their company in some stories of my own, such as The Scarecrow and His Servant, in which the scarecrow is a creature of unbounded and fathomless stupidity. And his servant, a little boy called, of course, Jack, is as honest and faithful as... What is he as honest and faithful as? As the day is long, it's right. And both of them are profoundly good, without a bad bone or stick in their bodies. It was a delight and a privilege to know these non-human, non-complicated beings. And I found the same delight, the same privilege, the same fun in telling the stories of Hans my Hedgehog, or the brave little tailor, or faithful Johannes, in this book. I've never worked with a Commedia dell'arte company, though I greatly admire that way of telling stories. But I imagine that the changeless force and brilliance of the masks who make up the list of characters is the same sort of thing as that of the characters in fairy tales. In rendering these stories in my voice, I was never for one moment tempted to make the characters human. They are something else like the ones, um, perhaps even especially like the ones who appear in multiples. The six brothers, the twelve princesses, the seven dwarfs. They exist halfway between the absurd and the uncanny. So I think they should remain. I referred once or twice to some exceptions in the Grimm collection, and it would be pretty dull if all the stories were of exactly the same kind. There's one story, Jorinda and Joringel where there occurs a sentence that made me set up and blink when I read it. Here it is. It was a lovely evening. The sun shone warmly on the tree trunks against the dark green of the deep woods, and turtle doves cooed mournfully in the old beech trees. Nothing remarkable about that in itself, but it's quite different in kind from anything else in the collection. It's the product of a single mind looking at something and painting a literary picture of it, maybe a conventional picture, but that's what it is. It's not the sort of thing a fairy tale is interested in. It alerted me to the nature of that story, and what I read next confirmed it, because the story goes on. From time to time, Jorinda wept, though she didn't know why. She sat down in the sunlight and sighed, and Joringel sighed too. They felt as sad as if they were close to death. In the intensity of their emotions, they lost track of where they were, and they couldn't find the way home. That seems to me about the least fairy tale like paragraph in the whole book. They haven't been cast out of home or anything like Hansel and Gretel, these two, they're just in love. All that weeping with no cause, all that intensity of emotion, what it is like is pure German romanticism. It's literary. It sounds as if it comes out of a book, not out of an oral tradition at all. 
And it's important to remember, of course, that there were other things going on in the intellectual Germany of the Grimm's time. Other things in academic philology, I mean. The sheer imaginative power of the Romantic movement couldn't be kept out of the world of scholarship and intellectual discussion. The brothers were men of their time. They were Romantics, too. When I looked to see where they, where they got this story from, I wasn't in the least surprised to find that it did come out of a book. The book in question was called Heinrich Stilling's Leben, an autobiography written by Johann Heinrich Jung, who called himself Heinrich Stilling. He was a friend and perhaps a disciple of Goethe. Before I began working on this book, I had a romantic idea myself about the Grimm's. I thought they wandered here and there with their knapsacks and notebooks, accosting peasants in the fields and jotting down the stories they could be persuaded to tell. I love to go a-transcribing my notebook in my hand. Not a bit of it. The bulk of the stories in their book came from their own social circle, their friends and relations, their sisters and their cousins and their aunts, that sort of thing. And a few came not in oral form, but in manuscript. What to my mind is the finest of all their stories, the juniper tree, came to them in that form. Uh, not in straightforward German, or not in um, high German anyway, in Plattdeutsch. Uh, it's very interesting to read the dialect of the uh, region where its author, Philip Otto Runger, came from. He was a painter from Pomerania. It's too long to tell that wonderful story this afternoon, but I do urge you to read it if you don't know it. It's a perfect work of narrative art. Uh, Runger sent it together with another story, The Fisherman and His Wife, also very good, to the Grimm's when he heard they were collecting stories. As I say, it's too long to read the whole of it, but I'll just quote a bit to show the particular quality that makes it unlike most of the other stories in the book. It begins with that common idea, the couple who want ch children and they can't have a child. The wife makes a wish, a wish that turns out to be fatal for a child as red as blood and as white as snow. Then, one month went by and the snow vanished. Two months went by and the world turned green. Three months went by and flowers bloomed out of the earth. Four months went by and all the twigs on all the trees in the forest grew stronger and pressed themselves together and the birds sang so loud that the woods resounded and the blossom fell from the trees. Five months went by and the woman stood under the juniper tree. It smelled so sweet that her heart leapt in her breast and she fell to her knees with joy. Six months went by and the fruit grew firm and heavy and the woman fell still. When seven months had gone by, she plucked the juniper trees and ate so many that she felt sick and sorrowful. After the eighth month had gone, she called her husband and said to him, weeping, If I die, bury me under the juniper tree. Now, I think Philip Otto Runger's vision of fertility in the woman, because, of course, one more month goes by and she has the child. Fertility in the woman and in nature is wonderful, but it's wonderful in an interesting way. There's nothing you can do to make it better. It's unimprovable. So we're stuck with it. And if we want to tell the story, we have to tell it pretty well in those words, in those phrases, in that sequence of ideas. And there's no better way that can be found. I'm not lamenting that, because, as I say, it is a great work of narrative art, and I wouldn't be without it. But it felt odd, nevertheless, when I was writing this book, to come up against that sort of resistance. There's nothing you can do to me. I'm staying like this. The last thing I'll say this afternoon, before reading a final story, is a word about simplicity. The juniper tree apart, these tales are, on the face of it, simple. Complexity is something that, in their case, they have not got. 
Mind you, there is a story called The Goose Girl at the Spring, which, um, but, um, no, 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 not now, read my notes. <laughs> it's tempting for an experienced writer confronted with such simplicity to feel that it's too simple and to feel a little challenged by it, to want to exercise their own sophistication. A little yarn like the musicians of Bremen. You remember the poor old animals who were going to be killed for being too old and who set off to join the town band in Bremen only to end by living happily in the house from which they chased the robbers by singing to them. Simple. Hear it once and you remember it. Nothing more complicated than that. But it's not the simplicity of clumsiness. It's the simplicity of perfection. Stories like that must be told simply, without affectation, without self-consciousness. And that's difficult, especially for the sophisticated literary mind. Good thing I didn't get one of those at Exeter College. <laughs> In the introduction, I quote the great pianist Arthur Schnabel, whose comment on the sonatas of Mozart seemed to me more apt than anything else in this context. They're too simple for children, he said, and too difficult for adults. That's how I felt about these tales. And I'll end with a story called The Moon. A very long time ago, there was a country where the night was always dark. After sunset, the sky covered the world like a black cloth because the moon never rose. And not one star twinkled in the darkness. A long time before that, when the world had been created, everything used to glow gently and give enough light to see by, but later on that faded. One day, four young men from that country set out on a journey and came to another kingdom just as the sun was setting behind the mountains. When the sun had gone completely, they stood still in amazement because a gleaming ball appeared at the top of an oak tree and cast a soft light all around. It wasn't as bright as the sun, but it gave enough light to see by and to tell one thing from another. The four travellers had never seen anything like it, so they stopped a farmer who happened to be driving past in his wagon and asked him what it was. Oh, that's the moon, that is, he said. Our mayor bought it. He paid three talers for it. He's got to pour oil into it every day and keep it clean so it all sh always shines nice and bright and we pay him a tower a week for his trouble. <laughs> when the farmer had driven away, one of the young men said, I tell you what, we could use this moon thing at home. My dad's got an oak tree about as big as this in his front garden. I bet he'd let us hang it there. Wouldn't it be good not to have some blunder about in the dark anymore? That's a good idea, said the second. Let's get hold of a wagon and a horse and carry this moon away. They can always buy another. I'm a good climber, said the third. I'll go up and get it. The fourth one fetched a wagon and horses. And the third one climbed the tree, drilled a hole in the moon, passed a rope through it and hauled it down. When they had the glowing ball safely in the wagon, they covered it with the tarpaulin so no one could see what they'd done. And they set off homewards. Back in their own country, they hung the moon on a tall oak tree. Everyone was, everyone was delighted when this new lamp cast its light over all the fields and shone through every window. Even the dwarfs came out of their mountain caves to have a look at it, and the little elves in their red jackets came out to the meadows and danced in the moonlight. The four friends looked after the moon, they kept it clean, they trimmed the wick and made sure it was always full of oil. They were paid a taller a week by public subscription. And so it went on till they grew old. One day one of them felt his death was near, so he sent for the lawyer and changed his will, saying that as a quarter of the moon was his, it should go into the grave with him. Accordingly, when he died, 
the mayor of the town climbed the tree and cut off a quarter of the moon with his secateurs, and it was placed in the coffin. The light from the rest of the moon was a little bit dimmer, but people could still see their way around. When the second one died, another quarter of the moon was buried with him, and the light grew dimmer still. The same thing happened with the third, and after the fourth died and was buried, there was no light at all. And when people went out without a lantern, they bumped into things just as they'd done in the old days. When the four parts of the moon were together in the underworld, where it had always been dark, the dead became restless and woke up from their sleep. They were astonished at being able to see again. The moonlight was quite bright enough for them because their eyes had been closed for so long that the sun would have been too bright. They cheered up no end, got out of their graves and began to have a high old time. They played cards, they danced, they went to the taverns and got drunk, they quarreled and fought and raised their sticks and walloped one another, and the row they made got louder and louder till it reached all the way to heaven. St. Peter, who guards the gate up there, thought a revolution was breaking out, and he called all the heavenly hosts together to repel the devil and his infernal crew. However, when the devils didn't turn up, he got on his holy horse and rode down to the underworld to see what was going on. Lie down, you brutes, he roared. Back in your graves, every one of you. You're dead, and don't you forget it. <laughs> then he saw what the problem was. The moon had put itself together again, and no one could sleep. So he unhooked it, took it up to heaven, and hung it up where no one could reach. Since then, it shines over every country, no matter where it is. And St. Peter takes away a bit away, away at a time till there's hardly any left, and puts them back together over the course of a month to remind people who's boss. <laughs> He doesn't take the cut-off bits down to the underworld, though. He's got a special cupboard to put them in. <laughs> it's just as dark down among the dead as it ever was. Thank you. Was I not right? Is he not a brilliant storyteller? Even when retelling Grimm. Um, we have time for questions. Uh, Kinsey has a roving microphone. Oh, Mark has a roving microphone. So uh, if you have questions for Philip, please do ask. Let me say um, before we start this, we'll take a little break once the questions are over and then Philip will be signing. Um, I see lots of children in the audience, or at least a handful, who've come with libraries of Pullman books <laughs> under their arms. Um, so, questions? Okay, no, it can't, so you tell and I'll... Yeah. Tell it loudly. I think the most difficult thing was choosing the stories and getting it down to 50. There, I, there were about 70 or 80 I thought were good enough to go into a book like this. But there wasn't room. We had to restrict it to 50. Um, apart from that, uh, well, deciding what to do with the juniper tree, whether to um, leave it much as it was or to do something to it. So I, le I left it as it was. But that wasn't, I mean, that decision made itself, really. 
apart from that, um, it was all enormous fun and enormous joy for me to do this. I had more fun doing this book than anything else. Partly because um, I didn't have to make anything up. <laughs> it was all there. We have one here. Hi. Um, were any of the stories just so inspirational that you, they made you think of a book that you wanted to write? Turn them from a fairy tale to a novel? Uh, well, uh, yes, there were some, um, but as I explained uh, in my words just now, it would be a different sort of thing. One of the stories of that kind, which I may well go back to, is a very interesting story called Thousand Furs. Now, that begins in a um, very dramatic way with a king who falls in love with his own daughter and wants to marry her. His wife has died and she's made him promise not to marry anyone less beautiful than she was or less with hair less golden. He falls in love with his own daughter and insists on marrying her. Well, she's terrified about this and his, his courtiers and ministers say, you can't do this, your majesty. It's against the law of God. But he, try, he insists and insists and insists on it. Anyway, finally she runs away. And from that point on, the story changes and becomes, because we never see the king again, uh, she goes to another country and uh, the story turns into a sort of Cinderella. In my notes to that, I suggest um, a way that um, I think we could finish it by bringing the king back, because I felt he ought to be dealt with, <laughs> this, king, this first king. Um, so I might well go back to that, maybe as a novel, maybe as a something else, maybe as a picture book. I don't know, but it's a story that isn't, doesn't seem to be finished in, this, in the state it's in. There were a number of stories that um, did fall apart a bit in the middle, or, or, or did have a slightly disappointing ending, or, or, or having introduced a character did nothing with them. That was the sort of thing I did think I was justified in um, fooling about with to get to get a bit better. Uh, what is the relationship between the stories that Grimm collected from the people who uh, gave him and the stories probably by Yeah, that's a very interesting um, area. The, uh, the stories that uh, Perrault wrote in the 17th century um, some of them are the same story. Uh, Cinderella is basically the same story. He's got a little red riding hood too, but Perrault's whole attitude to the material is different. Um, he's very courtly, very um, elegant, very... Um, uh, his intention is to amuse the adults, I think, as much as the children. Um, and some of them are straightforward moral warnings. In his little red riding hood, for example, she gets eaten up and that's it. And the moral is, um, don't trust a wolf. Uh, and there are smooth-tongued seducers about my child. Beware of them. Uh, well, that's not as good, I think, as, as the, the, the later story the Grimm said. It was Perrault who invented lots of delightful details, such as Cinderella's um, glass slipper, for example, which people think it was a mistranslation for fur. I don't know. Glass is more inventive, more magical altogether. I put my money on Perrault in intending that. Um, so there, there were quite a number of stories that, um, that occur in both. But for, um, how can I put it, for toughness and muscularity and sheer 
energy I put my money on Grimm? There's a question here in the middle. <laughs> Is there any other body of myth or folk tales that you feel like you'd have, like to have a crack at? Uh, well, most of them have been done. Um, Italo Calvino's Italian folk tales, a most wonderful collection, um, does um, all that can be done with stories from Italy. You couldn't get a better version of those stories. And I do recommend the book. It's just a, a treasury. It really is. Um, Catherine M. Briggs' version of a uh, collection of British folk tales. There might be some scope there because what she does, what she's done, is to take printed versions of the stories mostly um, and um, re reproduce them in whatever form they came to her. Some of them are, are in dialect, some of them are very long-winded, and some of them are very abrupt and so on. Well, I think something might be done with those, uh, but not by me and not yet. Yes, we, you're talking about the, the, the sort of quintessential fairy tale as being quite simple in a way and, and, and the sort of black and whiteness of it. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you two questions. I mean, the first was the Grimm's, the focus on Grimm's. I mean, Grimm's obviously is a moment in time. These stories themselves have a history. I mean, are, you know, we could, is, there, is there anything you could say about earlier versions that were in some senses different from the versions that... Grimm was writing, and then looking forward and say another hundred years, we see these stories turning up in the, the, the unconsciences of, of, of Freud's patients. Oh, yes. And that would indicate actually mm -hmm. that they're quite, they're quite deep, they're quite dark, there's a lot going on in, in them and in there. And I wondered if you, want, if you could say something about that. Yes. Um, the, firstly, the first part of your question, um, were there any other versions? Yes, they were. The, uh, this book has come out this year because it's the 200th anniversary of their first edition, so it was worth commemorating in that way. Uh, of course, there were um, earlier versions. Of course, other people were collecting the stories. They just did it bigger and did it better. And that's why, um, that's why they, their, their version became so famous and why there were seven editions of the, of the book in their lifetime. The story's getting longer and a little bit more complex and a little bit more, well, quite a lot more pious in some cases. So the stories do develop, and as I say in the introduction, a fairy tale is, is not a fixed thing, it's in a perpetual state of becoming and alteration. As for the second part of your question, the, um, the, the Freudian line, I suppose, was most interestingly and most thoroughly explored in Bruno Bettelheim's book, The Uses of Enchantment, which looks at a number of fairy tales in a very Freudian way. Um, and if a Freudian interpretation is what you want, look no further than Bettelheim. But there are any number of ways of interpreting these stories. There are um, formalist ways, where you look at the shape and the form of the story and see how it differs from or resembles other stories. There's, um, there are Jungian ways, another sort of psychological interpretation. Uh, and in, in this book, I parody, rather, a Jungian interpretation of one of the stories and show how easy it is to do that. Um, there are Marxist ways, there are post-colonial, there are all sorts of ways of <laughs> interpreting these stories. And they all work. The stories are strong enough to resist any interpretation. <laughs> what did you find you wanted to do with Cinderella, which must be the most retold, archetypal, popular 
story of all. Could we have the, could you? Can you, you sorry, can I get into it? Yes, the question was, what did you find you wanted to do with Cinderella, which must be the most archetypal, popular, read, retold story? How did you view that? And it is, you're quite right. It's the one which, um, for all sorts of reasons, not least in this country, I suppose, pantomime. It's the most popular pantomime. It's a wonderfully um, illustratable story. It's a story that speaks um, to every young child. And uh, I, I sometimes think it's the moment when our life story begins, actually. Our life begins when we're born. But our life story begins when we realize, usually in our teens, that we're in the wrong family by mistake. <laughs> I'm a princess. I don't belong with these people. I'm a prince. I do, what, what on earth put me in this? Look at their tasting wallpaper. It's appalling. I, I can't possibly live in this family. So, so it's a story that speaks to every child it's in, their, in, their state, in their process of growing up. It's, it's a very, very popular story. And it's one of the best. They tell it in, 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 in um, a very powerful and skillful way. However, there's a British version of Cinderella called Mossy Coat, which I love. I think it's actually better even than the Grimm's version. And I borrowed a little, um, little idea from Mossy Coat. In Mossy Coat, she's given um, three dresses, one the colour of the stars, one the colour of the moon, and one the colour of the sun. And I thought that was a nice, pretty thing to put in. So I stuck that in. Um, I didn't think I was entitled to do too much to Cinderella, because it's, um, as you say, um, almost one of those stories that are beyond alteration. But I, I put a little bit in from Mossy Coat. Yes, Katrina. As a parent of a two-year-old, I'm now starting to tell my own fairy tales at bedtime. You've talked about keeping the stories simple and keeping the characters two-dimensional. Did you find anything else in your um, compilation of either a set formula or set steps that you would suggest are common to all that would help said parent with said storytelling? <laughs> well, I'm sure there's something that's occurred to you already, and that's, that's the number three. Things happen in threes, don't they? Um, and then there's the, you know, the, the, the two brothers and the younger brother who's always the, the one who succeeds in the end against the, uh, against the likelihood of the story. The younger brother comes out on top. So there's that. And there's the, there's the, the, the setting in the background. Forests. You've got to have a forest. <laughs> there are lots of trees. And, um, uh, but but, but all, the, all, the, all the formulas are there. And they're there because they work. They're there because they have worked for so long. And um, the... What else is this? number three? Um, well, you can always invert things. You can always have some surprises. You can have the witch turning out to be a good person after all. Um, you, there are all sorts of ways of telling these stories. And, and you, you are allowed to do what you like with them. That's the point. Um, it's not a text. You're allowed to do what you like. By experience, you find that some ways work better than others. But um, I'm sure that you're two-year-old loves whatever stories uh, you tell and will go on loving them until they get old enough to wonder why they're in your family. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Mark? There we go. Um, did, did you have a favorite fairy tale as a small boy? And if you did, is it still the same, is it still your same favorite after putting together this compilation? I did love the story about the um, the, the 12 princesses who dance. 
and the, uh, the, 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 the old soldier who follows them by being given, he's given a cloak that makes him invisible. So he follows them down under the ground into this wonderful wonderland where they dance all night long and the trees have got shining diamonds on them and all this sort of... I love it because, um, because of the landscape. I like the idea of this um, land lit up at night. For the same reason I like the story of Aladdin when he's down in the, in the, um, in the cave in the first part of the story. And uh, you know all the, all the jewels shining on the trees. I just like the visual. The, 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 I like it visually. So um, that was probably my favourite. I can't say why other than that. Uh, but um, and I did enjoy working on the, the the shoes that were danced to pieces, as it's called in in in, in Grimm, that particular one. There's a question slightly further up. Um, a few people have written about how oral traditions or traditions of sharing stories have uh, become more prevalent because of digital technology and, and internet communities. How do you feel about people using your stories and retelling parts of your stories and using your characters uh, in fan fiction and, and those sorts of forms? Uh, they can have a word with my agent. LAUGHTER um, we're in, a, we're in a very interesting time at the moment. Uh, it's, th there have been three great revolutions in storytelling. First was when we started writing things down at all, at about the time of Gilgamesh. The second was when we started printing. And the third is now, when digital technology makes it possible to um, spread stories around the whole world in a moment to publish our own stories without any editorial interference. Uh, <laughs> it, um, it's, it's an extraordinary revolution, and we don't know where it's going, we don't know where it's, how far it's going to take us, or in what direction. So, things are changing very rapidly, and um, in a way it's flattering to have people telling your stories, and this happens with fan fiction. They use your characters and put them in stories of their own devising. Uh, well, the, I mean, if it, if it does get to the point of actual plagiarism, they'll feel, um, they'll feel the lawyer's touch on their shoulder. But other than that, they're welcome to it. Because the chances are they won't do it as well as I can. <laughs> I mean, use my characters. That's it. <laughs> How much longer do you want to go? Another couple of questions. Okay, a, a couple more questions if we. There's one back here. I wondered if you had any tips, either on writing or subversion, for educators. <laughs> ah, well, the most important thing that teachers can do is fight and struggle and fight again for the right to let children read what they want for as long as they want. Reading has been sliced and diced and cut to pieces in a very grim-like way by um, the diktats from the ministry, or whatever they call it this week, that deals with <laughs> education. Um, you know, cutting up a passage and taking, the, taking, taking all the adjectives out, or using this passage in order to teach them punctuation. That is, that is an abomination to me. Uh, and the time that we used to have when I was a teacher, to read a whole book with the class, to let them soak in it, luxuriate in it, enjoy it. And if we didn't like it, um, call a quiet halt and do another one. That was, that was um, looking back on it, that seems the greatest luxury. 
And children must, they absolutely must, have the freedom and the ability to read as much as they want, when they want, and for as long as they want. And that implies the existence of a school library, properly funded, properly run with a school librarian who knows the books and can recommend the right one to the right child at the right time. These things are so important. Uh, it, it's, it's, um, well, I came across a quotation from Albert Einstein. I don't know how true it is. Einstein is um, supposed to have said, if you want your child to be intelligent, read them fairy tales. If you want them to be more intelligent, read them more fairy tales. <laughs> These stories must be, not, and not just these stories, the stories by the great children's writers too, must be available to children. They must be helped towards them, um, shown what it's like to come to the end of a cliffhanging first chapter and you put the book down and leave them to do the rest. They must be um, tricked into it by saying, this book's too strong for you. You're not old enough for it yet. It'll give you strange thoughts and desires. <laughs> Put it on this shelf and I'm going out for a couple of hours. <laughs> That's, um, you know, we must help children to read and give them the means to read. That, uh, that alone is my prescription for um, education. Great. One last question. Is there anyone? Yes, back here. Mark, over here. You, re you referred to Gilgamesh and the origin of writing. Have you ever come into contact with some of the tales of people on Earth today who have a history of less than 150 years of recorded uh, writing, or recorded in writing, not even their own te uh, text? Well, I haven't done much reading in that area, but I'm sure it would be fascinating. The, the, the history of people told in their stories, of course, was what, um, what the Grimms were, were doing in the first place. Their initial interest was language. They, they were um, um, pupils of the, the great de Savigny, whose interest was in law, and his idea was law comes from language and shouldn't be, comes organically, as it were, out of language, shouldn't be imposed from above in a sort of Napoleonic way. That was their impulse. But I'm sure that there are many um, anthropologists, have been many anthropologists and other scholars, um, looking at the way people tell their own stories in different parts of the world. It's absolutely fascinating, no doubt about it. And it's, um, I count myself to be very lucky to um, be living in Oxford and to have a Bodleian card. It's one other thing that the college gave me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, my Bodleian card, which entitles me to go and read all these extraordinary and wonderful books. So anyway, um, I'll conclude by, by, by saying thank you to Exeter College. I pull its leg occasionally, but I, do, I am very grateful for what it gave me and for what Oxford has given me. And I'm grateful to you for coming here this afternoon. Thank you.
I think it is we who should thank you, but as you can tell from the enthusiastic response, that's, I think, how we all feel. There will be a short break now, and then uh, Philip is, he says, happy to sign books. So thank you all for coming. Thank you.